Hi, everybody. Welcome back to It's Not Magic, our podcast from Sixth Street. We invite incredible leaders to get to the core of how they're tackling complex tasks in their industry and the world. Today's guest talks about what's really going on in San Francisco and her mission to empower communities to act. Take a listen. I was like, no one is going to sign on to a Zoom at 12 o'clock on their lunch break to hear someone talk about homelessness. But people did, and they did it recurringly, and they kept coming back for more, and they wanted follow-up. They had follow-up questions. They wanted to know how they could make a difference themselves. So there's such an appetite to take action in San Francisco. That's Kanishka Chang, co-founder and executive director of the nonprofit Together SF and CEO of the political advocacy group Together SF Action. Kanishka didn't plan on becoming an entrepreneur, but after several years working for San Francisco City and County, she noticed a disconnect between residents and their government. Kanishka set out to rebuild the trust and community from the ground up. In the middle of the pandemic and during intense public unrest, she and her backers, including Michael Moritz from Sequoia Capital, started Together SF. Armed with grassroots support, Kanishka has not shied away from obstacles and has successfully turned her idea into a movement. We'll discuss Kanishka's passion for making city government actually work, Together SF's strategy to tackle generational issues, and the advice that empowered Kanishka to start taking more control over her time, including how to say no to meetings. Empowering San Franciscans may be harder than it ought to be, but it's not magic. Well, Kanishka Chang, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you here. It's a beautiful day in San Francisco. I just walked from downtown in the financial district to the studio where we do this. You're somewhere, um, you don't have to reveal where you are exactly, but I think you're in the city and it's sunny behind you. Yes. It's a beautiful day. It's a great place. So you could think that it's a fantastic place to live and it, it is a fantastic place to live. But there's also, if, depending on where you walk, it's kind of grim. And if you read the national press, it's it's like the it's Armageddon has come. So can you just like, let's level set and tell our listeners like what's really going on here? Wow. Well, first, thanks for having me on. It is a gorgeous day. Our office is in the mission. So that's where I'm joining you from, where it's almost almost always sunny here. Um, yeah. So, wow. So much is going on in San Francisco. <laughs> um, I would say the national press obviously is a little bit hyperbolic about what's happening, but there is a lot of reality, too. And I I do think that a lot of our local elected officials and sort of institutional organizations are very, very nervous about ever saying anything bad about San Francisco. Um, but I think that's very frustrating for a lot of residents because we can't solve our problems until we're honest about what they are. Um, and I think the idea that what San Francisco really has is a bad PR problem is not the best approach to solving our problems. Right. There's so many things that you can try. One could try to fix and lots of people are, are trying to fix stuff. What is Together SF trying to fix? Like what is what are you focused on? Together SF is focused on empowering voters with information, tools, making it very easy for them to know what's going on and then to use that information to hold their elected officials accountable to outcomes. So what we've tried to do is build a base, a group of voters and residents who haven't really been engaged in local politics. We think that is probably the largest group of San Franciscans that kind of just want normal things to work. They want the basic services to function at a high quality. And I think that's a very reasonable expectation given the amount of money this city has in its budget, the level of talent we have in leadership. We know we can do yeah. better. And so we're trying to get um, more informed voters to vote better. We're going to talk about what what you guys actually you know sort of do day to day. But is there something that surprises 
like San Francisco residents, San Francisco voters, as you go around and, and do that education process? Like, are they like, oh, I had no idea? There are many things that surprise people. One is that they often don't know who their supervisor is or what the board of supervisors is and what they do and how much power they have. Another thing that surprises people is that they're usually shocked that the mayor doesn't oversee the school district, that that's a different, entirely different political body and it's not, it's out of her jurisdiction. They're also surprised by who is on that body making those decisions. Oh, yeah, let's talk about that, actually. That's that's the D triple. So you should just can you describe what that is? And right now there's a lot of jockeying going on sort of in an off election year on who's going to be on that body. And wh- why are people interested in that? This is like in the weeds a little bit, but it's it's I think it's important. It's super in the weeds. Yeah, 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 yeah. But really important. Uh, the DCCC stands for the Democratic County Central Committee. So every county has one and it is the local chapter of the National Democratic Party. And I think that most voters think that this is just a um, the local presence of the presidential administration if it's a Democrat, right? So when I first got into politics, I thought this is like Barack Obama telling me who I should vote for when I got my piece of mail around the election telling me who the Democratic Party endorsed in my local election. So we do a lot of education to explain to people that's actually not how it works. The DCCC is made up of 26, 27 something people who run for office. The election is held in the primary and only registered Democrats can vote on it. So our next DCCC election in San Francisco will be the March 2024 primary. And Traditionally, the body has supposed to be focused, was supposed to be focused on registering more people as Democrats, growing the the Democratic Party, and sort of leading Democratic policy conversations at the local level and connecting it to the state Democratic Party, which then rolls up to national. What has happened in San Francisco, and this trend started to happen in 2016, is we started having uh, sitting elected officials who were in other elected seats run for DCCC and kind of take over that body. And this was a big deal because the party, the Democratic Party's, the DCCC, was traditionally supposed to be for uh, activists, kind of grassroots activists, up and coming people to kind of develop their political skills and kind of get in the mix. Um, and, And then we had kind of a takeover from sitting elected officials. And why that is important is because then they were able to control the endorsements of that body. And in a city where we have about 65% registered Democrats, the endorsement of the Democratic Party can swing elections significantly, especially in down-ballot elections like Board of Education, City College, and even the Board of Supervisors. So what it now operates as is mostly a body that votes on endorsements for itself, for the individuals on the body, as well as their political allies. So it's a real consolidation of power, and with it we've seen the shift. Do you have a sense of how many votes does an endorsement like that swing? Do you think? Because these are these are pretty small numbers at the end of the day in terms of like if you there's a, what eleven supervisors. It's a city of eight hundred thousand people. Like you can walk us through that math, but it's like less than ten thousand votes per supervisor, right? That that you have to get. Um, in some like districts, it's like eight thousand votes to become supervisor. In some, it's sixteen thousand. Yeah. But yeah, it's a small number of votes, and the DCCC endorsement has. Um, Gosh, I forget the number. I think it's like a 10% swing for the down ballot races. Now, it's not just that endorsement. Wow. It depends a little bit on the race. So for Board of Education, UESF, which is the teachers union, that endorsement combined with the DCCC endorsement is usually the, the dual factor that gets someone across the finish line for Board of Ed. So there's some combinations like that. Got it. 
this kind of, this kind of stuff matters and like you know people don't know about it they, they, they don't know how they can kind of get involved and and influence it I, I have in front of me a, um, a, I, I'm gonna ask myself the question what was most surprising is you sort of start to dig in into city government I have a chart in front of me of the city government it's, it's old and it's you know at a very high level what you expect there's an executive the mayor there's the legislature the city council there's you know judges and and then a lot of agencies and then there's like these commissions <laughs> that this is the most surprising thing to me. Can you, can you describe yeah. this incrustation of commissions? Yeah. yeah. Commissions are a thing that I am very, very passionate about. It used to be my job to appoint people to commissions when I worked for the mayor and manage all the commissioners. And it does take a lot of management. So there are 130 commissions in San Francisco. It is a huge anomaly when you can approach other cities, the number of commissions that we have. Some of them are very influential, like the Planning Commission literally approves and rejects major housing and development projects. The Police Commission sets the policies for how police officers do their work. They also adjudicate uh, HR issues with police officers. Same with Fire Commission. So the biggest issue that we see at our organization and that I feel very strongly about is that commissions dilute executive authority. So if you're an executive, you don't have direct oversight over the departments or the teams doing your, your the work that they're supposed to be doing because that policy is set by a sort of a middle management, which is the commission. The commissioners are appointed either by the mayor or by the board of supervisors. So usually it's a seven or five member commission and the mayor has a majority of those appointments. But for all of the influential commissions, the mayor's appointments can be rejected or must be confirmed by the board of supervisors. And then the board has their appointments that the mayor has no oversight over. So to get anything done at a department, including hiring and firing department heads, that has to all go through the commission. So it takes sort of management and vote counting and vote whipping to get that done. As you're describing to that to someone in the private sector who like thinks about corporate governance, for example, that is incredible. I mean, the power does not lie with the mayor as a result. I mean, there, and in a system where you do need an executive, it's, it's a sort of super, a strong executive who can like direct policy. It's a sort of super nullifying kind of kind of setup. It surprised me because as I thought about it, I thought, gee, I wonder if this came out of an era where government is corrupt and you need transparency and you want oversight and it has like good intentions, but it feels like it's just like grown all out of proportion and it's very hard to get things done. Is that, is that a correct Absolutely. Read? That was the case. Um, in 1996, I think was the last time the city did a big overhaul of our charter and there was a lot of negotiation on compromise around commissions. Um, and the idea was, I mean, the political climate at the time was Willie Brown was mayor and he was definitely a strong mayor. He used every ounce of power that the executive branch has. And in reaction to that, board members of the Board of Supervisors created more commissions. So since 1996, over time, we've seen more and more commissions get created to dilute that executive power. And of yeah. course, to the public, it, it sounds appealing, right? Let's have more transparency. Let's have more citizen representation on these bodies. But at the end of the day, no resident knows who's on the police commission. And that's the body that's going to decide who the next police chief is. It's not the mayor. Right. I mean, we, we could kind of peel back the onion on every one of the on 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 this kind of governmental reform, on civil service reform, on. But I, I want to take a step back and and let's talk about like 
this obviously was part of the impetus to start Together SF, but how, how did it start? Maybe we could talk there. Yeah, Together SF started, we started in March of 2020. I had been working primarily in the public sector for most of my career. So I had worked in affordable housing development. I'd worked at the Oakland Housing Authority, the San Francisco Planning Department, and then I transitioned into uh, policy and politics as a legislative aide, and then um, on the senior staff of Mayor Breed's administration when she was elected. And I just started to realize that we were losing touch with most residents in the city. And inside City Hall was thinking about the city's problems very differently than residents were. And I saw this, you know, I had an opportunity to meet with Michael Moritz and talk about what was happening in San Francisco. Michael Moritz, obviously, people know who he is in, in our, but the, the, the kind of legendary VC investor from Sequoia and, and, and is your co-founder of, of Together. Right. He talks to a lot of people about what's happening in San Francisco. He takes a real like trying to get educated approach. And when I spoke with him, I talked about what I thought the city needed to re-engage with residents, build that trust and relationship back in government to get them to care more and then talk to them about how to vote better. And so that was always the goal of Together SF is how do we rebuild this community and get them more engaged. So I had the opportunity to start Together SF with him. Um, and I gave my two weeks notice. And uh, my last day for the city was the Friday before the city went into lockdown for COVID in 2020. Impeccable um, timing. And so now I was, yeah. <laughs> so now I was um, given this big task to launch this organization at the beginning of a global pandemic. So we started it as volunteering. That was the highest need. And it was where I could really be the most useful is I had a lot of relationships with nonprofits and other organizations in the city, and I, I knew that there was a need for volunteers. And at the time, we had this huge pool of young and able-bodied people who were suddenly working from home um, that wanted to be useful. So we started out as a Squarespace site and a Google Sheet where you signed up to get matched with a senior in your neighborhood that you would do grocery shopping for or meal delivery for a nonprofit, food packing on the weekends. Yeah. And that's all we did for about a year. And we kind of followed um, where our community was growing and what they wanted to talk about. And it evolved from food security to actually the school district, because this was also when the schools in San Francisco were not reopening um, and parent anxiety was growing around that. Parent engagement was really growing. And we started doing webinars about what's happening in San Francisco, kind of explaining bigger problems like homelessness, housing, public education. And it sort of evolved from there. And so as reopening happened, we've transitioned into a lot more in-person events that are also education-based. And then in June of 2022, so 2022, we had four elections in San Francisco. It was an extreme anomaly. And for the June election, which was our third out of the fourth, we did a ballot explainer, kind of just explaining both sides of every issue on the ballot. And... The feedback we got from our community was that's that's super useful. I'd love to know what your organization thinks. Because I think by that time, we had built relationships with, with a lot of people and we were starting to become a trusted voice. And so that kind of created an opportunity for us to launch our Together SF Action C4 organization, which allows us to do advocacy and take positions on things on the ballot. So we launched that in the fall of 2022 to to be impactful in the last November's election. And that's how we got more into political advocacy. So 
was that the so to speak the original business plan was to be a, a an informing organization and 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 helping people kind of unravel things or were you pivoting because of what you were hearing during the pandemic the original vision of the organization was to help people understand what's happening to help them connect the dots between what they're voting for and how those things are playing out um, and to really help them become more informed voters. The shape of the organization and exactly how we do that was not predetermined. And I, I want to get into how, how you actually do it day to day. But before we do that, I, I'd love to just kind of rewind the tape and, and have people hear about your background, which is super interesting. You were born in Sri Lanka. You came here as a kid and you lived in the Bay Area. And then you went to, and you should yeah. stop me and like unpack stuff or whatever, but because yeah. I'm obviously not going to tell your story for you. But what I wanted to get to was you were at UCLA, you were going to be a pediatrician, right? That was kind of your plan. And then you took an urban studies or an urban planning class. And like, what caught your eye in that? I mean, that because that, it really obviously changed your trajectory. Yeah, big time. Um, so I came here as uh, a refugee from the civil war that was happening in Sri Lanka. I was six years old. I came with my mom and my brother. My dad wasn't allowed to come with us for political and immigration reasons. And so we didn't see my dad for two years. But I had this oh, wow. very, um, very traditional sort of American dream story. We came here with nothing. We lived in public housing. We were on food stamps. We benefited from, you know, the charitable people at our church, all those things. And is really a testament to what immigrants think of America, the land of opportunity that within a generation, I'm the first in my family to go to college. And I got to have a seat at the table at the administration of San Francisco's mayor. So that was it was a huge accomplishment for me to get there. And I credit it all to incredible social programs and government services. And so my passion and driver has always been that economic mobility is really the goal for most people, especially immigrants, and that that is that is most opportune in cities if government is run effectively. And so. That is really what coalesced for me when I took that urban studies class that like, hey, this is actually what I care about. And it's so interesting. Like, I didn't even know this was a a profession I could have, that this was an academic inclination that you could have. And it really opened my eyes to kind of what was possible. Um, I think that's sort of the magic of college and getting to take electives. It's it's uh, yeah we're we're big liberal arts fans at least uh or, or at least I, am. <laughs> I think most people ought to be because because you, you you can't know what you right. don't know and it's just it's just an amazing muscle to to be able to exercise and it's an incredible luxury. Going through you you describe the Oakland Housing Authority up to being at the at the mayor's table, um, running an organization that's uh, presumably well funded and and how did you get smart on how to do that? Did you pick up sort of um, uh, lessons along the way about how to run an organization, how to start an organization. I mean, you're, you're a startup entrepreneur, right? I mean, yeah. that's, that's what you're doing. Yes. It happens to be in a sector that's going to hopefully benefit a lot of us. How did you get smart on how to do that? I have really been building the plane as I fly. Like when we started, I had no idea what I was doing. You know, the mistakes that were made in terms of who you hire as vendors, as accountants, as lawyers, as business ops, Um, vendors, it's just like there's so much room for error there and it can really hurt how you start an organization. I think that I was very lucky to have co-founders and advisors that are very, very helpful and still very engaged with us and help me make a lot of decisions. My previous, all of my previous work that included running and working on political campaigns in San Francisco helped me understand that side of it. But the hardest thing was the skill set of how to manage, how to grow, how to scale and how to fundraise. Those were all things yeah. I had not done previously. Talk about how do you scale and grow? Like what's like, maybe from your personal lens, how are you adjusting how you spend your days and weeks to make sure that you can continue to do that? I think it's a very hard thing for It's founders. really, really hard. That is probably my biggest challenge is um, saying no to things. 
I think as founders, we want to take every yeah. opportunity. We don't want to miss out on anything. And really learning to strengthen that muscle of deciding what's going to serve your organization, what is going to keep you focused on your goals. Um, I think the biggest actually helpful thing that I did was hire people who know how to do that better who have management experience, who have built other organizations and put them in ops roles to help scale the organization. So about a year ago, we brought in someone from the private sector who um, is a Stanford MBA and had built organizations and scaled them before and wanted to get more involved in local government and politics and make a difference there. And so we've been very fortunate that she's applying her skills, her private sector skills into the work that we're doing and has really helped us, helped me especially figure out how to scale and grow and manage my time better. Uh, well, what's an example of a lesson that, that she brought in and was like, oh, I didn't know I could do that. Uh, I can say no to meetings. I can make them short meetings. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to give everybody a lunch. Um, that's a huge lesson. Somebody else told me that. Another founder told me that this week is that he doesn't do any lunches with people because lunches can turn into an hour and a half. And I'm just like, wow, that's so bold to just say no to lunches. I'm still learning how to how to flex that muscle because it's just the time. The time is the hardest thing to manage. Um, we are in year three and I'm still in a point where I stop working at 4.30, pick up my kid, do dinner and bedtime, and then I'm working again until probably 10.30, and that's probably not sustainable. And so I have to get better at managing my time. It's it's the constant struggle. I, I think you're telling us something about the culture of government maybe, which is that people don't say no to meetings and yes. meetings go long or they're like, yeah, that, that's that's what happens. Big time, big time. That's the biggest thing. And she always comments on that. that it's so wild to her that when we have meetings with other nonprofits or government agencies, that when a meeting starts, there's no clear goal setting of what are we meeting for? What are we trying to get out of this? What are our deliverables? What are our follow-ups? There's none of that. There's a lot of time wasted. There's so much inefficiency. And that is the culture we're trying to break away from. Yeah, I got it. Um, talk about like the, the, the sort of actual act of informing people. I, I get the voter guides. I think you do, I know you do, house meetings and other kind of gatherings. What have you learned in the three years or two years since you're able to kind of get get out there in person that makes those like effective information trans transmission things. People care so deeply about their city. People love this city. They really want to make a difference and they are so hungry for the information. That I think has been the biggest lesson. When we first started doing these webinars in the fall of 2020, I was like, no one is going to sign on to a Zoom at 12 o'clock on their lunch break to hear someone talk about homelessness. But people did, and they did it recurringly, and they kept coming back for more, and they wanted follow-up. They had follow-up questions. They wanted to know how they could make a difference themselves. So there's such an appetite to take action in San Francisco, um, and I think that we've been really able to tap into that. The other big thing that I think has really been coalescing for me over the last couple of weeks is that as this year, our organization has focused on the fentanyl crisis um, and the drug crisis as the root cause of many other challenges in the city, um, including the recovery of downtown yeah. and homelessness, public safety, all of it, right? And no one's really been willing to talk about this issue. And so we've opened up this conversation and now there are more and more people talking about it. And I think what people needed was permission to have this conversation and have it in a productive way. What do you mean by that? Well, I think that um, talking about drugs and public safety is scary in San Francisco because there is this real anti-police sense. Nobody wants to be pro-law and order or pro-public safety. 
And talking about that in a balanced approach is really, really hard. We probably spend, that's what we spend a lot of time on and figuring out how to get that language right, how to make sure our message is well-received. And of course there's criticism, but that we have facts to buffer against that. But opening up that conversation for the public, I think has been really, really interesting for me to see that most people agree and they want the basics. And we've kind of been gaslit by some elected officials telling us that's not the case and certainly very loud activist voices on Twitter telling us that's not the case. But now I have this real confidence that that's where most of the public is and they want to have this conversation. People outside of San Francisco need to understand, and you, you said this before, 65% registered Democrats. We're talking about, you know, gradations and, and extremes, I guess, within within the Democratic, you know, sort of electorate, I guess. Absolutely. So there's like a, a, a you know, there's, I'm going to ask you in a little bit, like sort of like, is there an application to some of the things that you're doing here nationally where it's a, across a, a different divide, but, you know, it's it's as, as passionately held, maybe. But when an activist is saying, I'm anti, I have an anti-police sentiment like just put it let's put ourselves in their shoes for two seconds like what's the what is their argument like what like what, nobody wants violence right, I mean, no, right. Uh, nobody rational wants violence no nobody wants the humanitarian disaster that's going on so what what are they saying like what why are they saying something different from what you know you think the 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 mass of san franciscans are saying what i think that they believe is that the police system is an inherently racist and institutionalized racist system, and it cannot be reformed, it cannot be fixed, and it should be abolished. There are true abolitionists in San Francisco, that's what they call themselves, that want to completely abolish the police system and abolish jails um, entirely. They want to get rid of the idea of incarceration at all. And there are elected officials in San Francisco that hold that view as well. So they are very loud about it. And Nobody wants to be called a racist. I think that's everybody's biggest fear. Right. When you're, a, you know, a very left-leaning Democrat in San Francisco, you don't want to be called a racist. You certainly don't want to be called a Republican. And so that fear has made people scared to even talk about it. And that tide is just starting to change, I think, following the recall of our DA and then the election of a very different DA in November. And so the 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 the, the act of convening conversations and you're framing conversations, I guess, in a way where... You're saying things. You're saying them in a. You're you're framing them in a, in a, in a way that you know it's hard to disagree with. But like you're you're opening. You're creating the space to to say things that otherwise people would be worried about saying. Like how do you actually do that? You mentioned like you're getting the language right. Is that that's a big part of it? That's a big part of it. Having the data behind it is a big part of it. Yeah. Bringing in other experts who have lived experience or have played have been on the front lines of these issues come talk about it is another big part of it. So. We do a lot of work to really curate the events to create that space. Our most recent one, I'll give you an example, was about drug services, drug user services. And um, you would think that's a pretty easy topic. Everybody wants to have the right amount of services available for people who are struggling with addiction and want to get help. But San Francisco doesn't. And that's a tough conversation to have because you are inherently going to upset the departments in the city that funds programs that doesn't want to look like they're not doing a good job there. Yeah. But we created a panel of three uh, very vocal advocates who are all in recovery, but have slightly different viewpoints. And on Twitter, two of them have been pretty openly fighting with each other about those viewpoints. But we had them all on a panel and we had a really open, reasonable, fruitful conversation and found a lot of points of agreement. So I think creating that's an example of how we create that space for people to have that conversation. Yeah, I like that. What what 
to ask you sort of the private sector annoying question, like what are your performance indicators? Like how do you know that it's working? Is it is it number of conversations had? Is it like, oh, we actually are getting this on the ballot? Is it, you know, some kind of outcome? Uh, maybe that'll change over time. I'm just curious how, what, what you think success is. Yeah, right now we measure success by the the growth of the organization, how big is our network getting? And we measure that by email, sign up, social media follows. Yeah. Another big indicator for us is the churn rate. How much are people coming back to events? We track all of that. And then the highest bar for us is, are they willing to take a action? And that looks like either emailing your elected representative and letting them know what you want them to do or posting on social media or inviting more friends to it. Um, those are the, our highest values. And then I would say our, our sort of gold standard is if you're willing to open up your home or business and invite your network together to hear from us, we do have a lot of people sign up for that too. How's it, how's it going? My understanding it's going quite well. Yeah, it's going really well. Um, we're actually hitting a, a staff bandwidth issue right now with how many more of those house party events we can do. Huh. That's encouraging. Is there a national application to some of the things that you're doing? So sort of the either complex systems thinking or or convening people like, and again, we've got enough to do in San Francisco, but I wonder if other people are looking at what you're doing and saying, gee, we could we could take this to Washington or something like that. Yeah, a lot of this work is very traditional campaign organizing, political advocacy work that many national and other local organizations have done. I think it's just different in San Francisco. It hasn't existed with this specific brand of politics. The biggest inspiration, I would say, was the Obama campaign did a lot of this kind of grassroots community development bring people together in their homes, their communities, and having those conversations there. I was in college and grad school during those years. And so I did a lot of that as a volunteer. And it really, it worked so well. I think it really informs how we've approached what we're building out here. We also take a lot of cues from what national Democrats are saying. Um, you know, Stacey Abrams, when she was running, she did this tweet thread about how police should not only be supported, but should be paid more. And that was, I think, a big deal, right? Because she's such a left-leaning Democrat and that she was talking about this. And it was such a sharp change from 2020's language and discourse in the Democratic Party about public safety. So we can take yeah. cues from that, too, and see sort of where people who are running to appeal to more middle-of-the-road voters, what they're talking about, because I think that is what most voters talk about, even in San Francisco. Uh, you mentioned, you know, sort of staff capacity. H how do you keep people motivated, incentivized? You know, it's not the private sector. So what, what people are obviously, you know, pretty dedicated to what they're doing, and we're, we should all be very grateful for it. But how do you keep them motivated? I would say that's that's our biggest challenge is managing staff capacity and bandwidth. Uh, I think it's everything the private sector is experiencing too in terms of hiring. It's really, really hard for us too, maybe even harder because this is mission-driven work. Um, in, even though we're a startup, it's not like you're going to get equity at the end of the day, right? You're going to see a political win, hopefully. And so finding folks who are motivated by that is one part of the challenge. The other part of the challenge is then keeping them motivated and sustained in what is not a traditional campaign cycle. So what I mean by that is the people who work as community organizers or campaign managers, they work on a very short cycle. A campaign is maybe six to nine months, maybe a year max, where you are ramping up and you kind of burn out at the end of election day. And then everybody sort of takes a month off to put themselves back together. 
But what we're trying to do is invest in people for multi-year campaigns. Um, and so that requires mm. a lot of thought about how we keep them engaged and motivated, prevent burnout, distribute work better, take things on and off people's plates. Then the third part of that is um, there is a challenge with the role specifically for community organizers. It's mostly appeals to younger people and it's often their first job. And so there's a lot of um, training and support that they need to sort of understand how to do this job in a more sophisticated way. You mentioned earlier together SF Action, your C4. Can I ask how how you're thinking about that? Right, Right now, your 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 convening conversations, your framing debates within the context of San Francisco, nonpartisan. I think uh, you're, you're yes. trying to get to the right answer on stuff. Inevitably, does the C four start to back candidates, back particular ballot initiatives, like put money behind them? Like, how are you thinking about that? Yeah. So in November, the voter guide was the first foray into backing issues and candidates because we took positions. And then we distributed our voter guide through a field program and through house parties as the vehicle to talk to people about the things, about the issues and candidates that we backed. So that's one way to do it. In the We are gearing up in 2024, hopefully to perhaps put forth our own ballot measure around an issue or reform that we think is necessary. I think that is, that is where we ultimately go with the C4. San Francisco politics, public stuff. It's like notoriously rough and tumble. Yeah. Uh, and you're like your professional world is that world, right? I mean, like, so, you know, everybody and everybody knows you. Is, how, is, it's got to be hard sometimes. How do you how do you do that? How do you navigate that? It's it's really hard. I was actually thinking about this this week because um, uh, so many of my closest friends still work in City Hall and work for elected officials or are now elected officials. And um, yeah. as an organization, our first duty and loyalty and obligation is to the city and to what's best for the city. And Michael and I talk about this, that we are not here to serve any one politician. We are here to serve the city. Um, And that is challenging because serving the city means sometimes shining a light on what's not working. And um, people in office, people who run departments, people who run programs are obviously very sensitive about what they're doing because for them, they're also trying their hardest, right, to do something. Um, everybody is the hero of their story. So us calling it out is very hard. Um, I do a lot of work trying to make sure people understand what we're doing is not about them personally. It's not intended to hurt them personally. We don't do any like personal attacks. But we will call something out if we think it's not working well. And we will suggest what we think you could do better and what we're really doing is building political support for you to do what we think is the right thing. I think that's that's sort of how we balance it, balance it is to show um, elected officials that there is public support for the things that we're asking you to do. And you should feel brave and strong in doing those things. Maybe we can just press a little bit on the fentanyl crisis. You, br- you brought that up and it's it's so central to a lot of the other, like you said, a lot of the other pathologies and things that we're dealing with in the city. What what in particular should we be doing? What, what are you guys advocating? We are advocating for the city to address the supply and demand side of the drug markets. So on the supply side, 
We're advocating for law enforcement to have a role. Um, We actually think that this should be a federal issue, given that the DEA has been very clear that the drugs are coming in from outside of the country. We're having higher and higher rates of cartel presence in San Francisco. This should be a federal issue. And it's certainly beyond the scope of SFPD, who is now short 600 police officers. So what you want to see is the city call for the DEA to come in and actually manage the drug bust operations and have people... Uh, prosecuted at the federal level and not clogging up our local system. So that's the disruption of the supply side of the market. Um, And then on the demand side, we know that the city is not delivering enough treatment options. There is not available beds for the people who want it. Forget a conversation about compelled treatment or compelled care. We don't even have enough beds for people who want it. And we don't have enough beds for people who are arrested for crimes that are fueled by their addictions. And we have a DA who's willing to offer them either treatment or jail, but we don't have enough treatment options for even those folks. So we're advocating for the city to spend more money there. And we think that the city has enough money to do it. They're just not doing it efficiently or effectively. So Those are our two big asks um, that are very specific, and we'll be working on uh, the upcoming budget process to advocate for funding in those categories. The, The bigger issue is how do we think about this as a big policy shift? So there is a paper that's published that talks about Uh, European cities that had drug markets explode as well. And they all did four things. And we can we talk about this as sort of the four pillars that we need to have in San Francisco. It is medicalization. So that is harm reduction and harm reduction does have a role in addressing the drug crisis treatment shelters. So we need more shelters for people so they're not out on the streets and they need to be high quality shelters that come with services And law enforcement, law enforcement has to have a role. But the biggest part of these four pillars is that there is social and political consensus for all four of these things to happen at the same time. And I think where San Francisco gets in its own way is that our elected officials cannot be unified that this is what needs to happen, that we do have consensus on this. They instead want to pick what are more carrot options and do not want to deploy any of the stick options. And it's pretty clear from any city that's managed this problem is that we need to have a balance of both. How do we pay for all that stuff? I mean, we started off the conversation saying, you know, I I was walking from downtown. Downtown, it's delightful, it's sunny, uh, but there's not a lot of people around. I do worry about the, we all worry about the, the cliff that's coming in terms of commercial uh, real estate lessees, you know, leaving the town and the tax base is eroding. And is, is that the response you get when you kind of propose these things or are there are there other impediments? Am I thinking about it wrong? That, that Yeah, there's political impediments of arguing about what's right and what should go first, what's the right approach, yeah. you know, whatever. But on the, on the how do we pay for it side, I think that the tough answer yeah. is that we are funding a lot of things that aren't working and we need to have an honest conversation about what's not working and then cut those things and reallocate that money to what we believe is our city's most urgent and pressing crisis. We don't have time Got for it. the luxurious pet projects that we've always had with a $14 billion budget, given that we do have this fiscal cliff coming and we are in a, a very serious crisis. Right. I, I want to talk about the business community. We are talking about downtown. I mean, one sort of thing that I hear, whether it's in finance or tech or whatever, is like, gee, if they only did that, that one thing, like, you know, we, we, could, we could fix it if people would only just do X. And it's never just one thing. It's a multivariate equation. It's a lot of complicated stuff. You've been talking about mm-hmm. everything from government, governance reform to stopping the, the supply side, the demand side of drugs. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on. And it's going to take 
it's going to take years. It's a generational kind of struggle to, to unravel these problems and, 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 and to get things right. Do you run into that attitude where it's like, oh, you know, if, if I were in charge and we had like a strong mayor or whatever, we could just do, you know, X, Y, and Z and we'd be done. And so I'm interested if, if that's something that you're confronting when you, when you talk to people. Um, and then more broadly, like the business community, like what should we be doing? How can we be helpful? Is that an annoying question? We should figure <laughs> it, we, we, you know, like we have resources to bring to bear. And, uh, you know, one of the things we can be doing is making sure that we're bringing our people back into the city and, and actually coming to work, uh, which I think is healthy for an organization, generally speaking. But like, w- w- sorry, long question, but like, you know, what, <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, it's definitely a generational problem that is going to take many years to undo. But I think what we are lacking right now is a, a sense of urgency and a clear a clear plan of what needs to happen. What are those five, 10 steps that need to happen to restore downtown and to bring our economy back to where it could be and even continue growing after that, right? So I think one part of this is, yes, of course, everybody should make their employees come back to work, sure. But I don't think that there's any one thing. And I think the reality is that work culture has shifted. People have more options. And we can't just say, like, you should all force your employees to come back to work, right? Not the city itself hasn't even forced all its employees to come back to work. Um, so <laughs> so that's a problem. Um, I also think it's, it's a chicken and egg situation, right? Like, I think uh, it was in New York City where people were feeling very unsafe on the subways. There were a couple of instances of people being pushed on the platform, some assaults. And so they invested in just having a greater police presence on the subways that made people feel safe enough to come back to them. And then you had a critical mass of people on it and then it was safer to be on it. And then you could pull back on the police presence. We need to we need to think about, I think, that kind of approach in San Francisco too. I don't think it's fair to tell the business community, just bring all your people back to work. The city has an obligation too, to make downtown yeah. feel clean and safe and welcoming. And back to the carrot and stick thing, what they've focused on, I think, is making it feel welcoming through like pop-ups and events and activations that's not enough to bring people back to work, I think. And so we have to have we have to do that harder part of the stick, which is having a law enforcement presence and being OK with that. Probably there are other wonky things that the city probably needs to do. And these are the tough political conversations that I don't know that elected officials are willing to have yet. But what I keep hearing from business community is we have to reconsider the transfer tax if we're going to save all these huge office buildings. Um, There was a story today about one selling for like 30% below its valuation two years ago. And this all comes back to our really complicated tax structure in San Francisco and the fact that business taxes can be put on by ballot um, through signatures, through four supervisors' signatures. And frequently, like almost every year, we have a new tax measure on the ballot. And I'm not like an anti-tax person, but San Francisco has gotten way out there in the number of taxes, the complications of the system, and sort of this attitude that we are an island and that people aren't just going to pick up and go to the next town over, and that the next town over isn't actually recruiting people, right? Because that's also happening. Yeah, of course. I mean, South San Francisco, for example, or Austin, Texas, for that matter. What will be a sign of a win? What's a win, short or medium term? A win is winning elections, is getting more people on the board of supervisors who are willing to work together, to be reasonable, to compromise. We have one member right now who said compromise is not a value. And I don't think that's an effective way to govern a city, right? So we want to get people elected who are willing to work together and are willing to have these tough and honest conversations to make cuts where cuts need to be made. Um, 
I would love to see more elected officials who have had experience that that is outside working for the city of San Francisco. Um, that's something that's lacking as well, yeah. having more diverse perspectives in that way. So in this last election in November, we counted three big wins for, for our organization. And we had two supervisors elected who we really went to bat for. And we had a DA elected who we really support. And now we get to work with them and hold them accountable and tell them what we want them to do and, and build public support for those things. Going forward in 2024, I think getting more reasonable voices on the DCCC would be a huge win. In 2024, it is it feels like a generational election for San Francisco. We will have every odd district on the Board of Supervisors up for election. Three of them will be open seats. So that's a huge opportunity to change the conversation. The mayor is yeah. on the ballot. The DA is on the ballot. We have a lot of chessboard gaming happening with Nancy Pelosi um, retiring and her seat opening and seeing how people will shift to go for that opportunity. That, that, that seat matters because it's kind of the dean of the of the of the electeds in the in the region, but also because that means that certain people who are in seats are going to go for it. Right. And, and, and leave vacancies. That's right. Are you hopeful? Oh, we're extremely hopeful. Absolutely. I feel like, you know, this last year was the pendulum starting to swing a little bit more to the center and we have a lot more work to do, but it feels like the momentum is just, it's still gaining and growing and that we are tapping into it um, and helping to push that conversation as well. Absolutely. Well, for all of us that uh, live here and, and uh, I'm, 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 uh, you know, not from here, but lived here almost, you know, 13, 14 years. Like it's a, it's a, it's a great place. And, um, you know, thank you. And not just thank you for, for doing stuff, but for getting us all involved. And so, um, we, we really appreciate it and we appreciate your time. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That was Kanishka Chang, co-founder and executive director of Together SF and CEO of Together SF Action. As Kanishka said, starting the conversation is the first step to tangible change. We commend Together SF for not only opening dialogue, but for welcoming a diverse range of perspectives into the discussion. It's always great to see communities unite under the shared goal of making their environment the best it can be, even when their political ideologies differ. Kanishka's work has been especially impactful because she meets people where they are and recognizes that a quick fix isn't the solution. San Francisco, it's a great place to live and work. It should be a great city, but we got to do the work. And we're excited to work with Kanishka and everyone else of good faith working to make San Francisco livable and humane and a hub of uh, exciting things. Thanks for joining us, Kanishka Chang. Keep up the great work. Thanks to everyone for listening. You've been listening to It's Not Magic, a Sixth Street podcast. You can read more about our guests on SixthStreet.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please share it and follow it at Sixth Street News on Twitter for more news on the show and our firm. Thanks to Sixth Street's production team, Patrick Clifford and Ritvi Shah, putting this together with sound engineering by Stephen Colon. Our theme song is It's Not Magic, an original creation by Patrick Dyer-Wolf. Once again, I'm David Stiefelman. Thanks for listening. expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Sixth Street, and Sixth Street is not providing any investing, financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. Please see additional disclosures on our website for more details.